This Human Capital Podcast is brought to you by Goalspan, a performance management app that helps you set goals, get real-time feedback, run reviews, and align your workforce around what's most important. With Goalspan, you can integrate with all your favorite HR and payroll apps. To learn more, go to goalspan.com. Welcome to the Human Capital Podcast. I'm Jeff Hunt. Today, we're going to talk about the complicated topic of trust. Trust is a fundamental element that underpins both our personal and business relationships. Let's just think about this for a second. How much is trust worth to a company whose customers explicitly trust them? Or how much is trust worth to you if you're able to completely trust your boss, your leadership team, or your peers? Trust is essentially the adhesive that binds individuals, organizations, and societies together. According to the Edelman Trust Barometer, high trust organizations experience greater customer loyalty, increased employee engagement, and a better ability to weather crises. These statistics provide compelling evidence of the direct impact of trust on both financial and non-financial performance metrics. Conversely, according to Edelman, the world is becoming a more polarized place and distrust breeds polarization. For example, when asked, very few people would help live near or work with someone who disagrees with their point of view. To help me unpack all of this, I have the pleasure of welcoming a special guest to the show today. Dr. Henry Cloud is an acclaimed leadership expert, clinical psychologist, and New York Times bestselling author. His 45 books, yes, I did say that correctly, 45 books, including the iconic Boundaries, have sold over 20 million copies worldwide and have helped transform the relationships and lives of millions of people. Henry has an extensive executive coaching background and experience as a leadership consultant, devoting the majority of his time to working with CEOs, leadership teams, and executives to improve performance, leadership skills, and culture. His latest book titled Trust is a must read, and I've put a link to it on my recommended books list on the podcast website and also in our show notes. And on top of that, Henry is just an all-around good guy. (laughs) Welcome, Henry. It's good to be here. Excited about all you're doing. Let's start with a thumbnail of your career journey. How did you end up where you are today? Oh, gosh, there's no saying we make a plan and God laughs, right? (laughs) Because we really don't know all the steps and the destinations until we get on the trail. But I did know early on that I was really, really interested in the field of psychology. So I went into um, my training as a clinical psychologist. And when I went knocking on doors for my first job, I got hired by a leadership consulting firm because this is way before he's executive coaching and all that, but they learned, and this doesn't surprise anybody, leaders have issues, right? (laughs) So there's personal and interpersonal dynamics that get in the way of performance. And so as a clinical psychologist, I actually started out in the context of working with really high performers and fell in love with the field of leadership as well. So I really had two parallel tracks, a few years into practice as a clinician, my business juices were flowing and I wanted to do something in addition to the clinical work. And I wanted to start a psychiatric hospital that I could have total control of 
the way things worked and the models and the milieu and all that. And so long story short, did one hospital and that was successful, did well, then did another one and another one ended up with hospital units and treatment centers in about 40 markets in the Western United States and ran that company for a long time and then sold it when managed care and the field started to change. And then I went from there, what I really like to do, I love working with high performers. And so since then, that was in the late nineties when I sold it, I've been you know, I hung up my shingle little boutique practice and I work with CEOs and their teams and organizations, sometimes big inter enterprise wide projects for, you know, even big, big public companies as well as smaller firms. So I still spend about a hundred days a year in the war rooms with CEOs and their people. And that really is what kind of lights my fire. Was there any one person that really inspired you along the way? Well, in terms of the field itself? In any way that you may have felt inspired to continue to grow and learn and go deeper into this incredible space. Yeah, I would think of it, it sort of, it takes a village. You know, it's like that long-term study that was it 70 something years at Harvard did on what makes people successful. And it's really the circle that surrounds you. I, I think because my work, touches on so many different arenas from business to performance, to clinical issues, to I do some things in the faith-based world. I would say it's a handful of people. I had one particular business mentor who adopted me, basically he was about 20 years older when I was 23 or 24 years old and really, really taught me a lot about business. And then I was working with organizations and there've been CEOs that I've worked with that really, really inspired me, even though I was there to help them, you know, you can't watch these superstars without learning a lot and getting inspired and certainly a lot of their people. And then in the, the more the harder science of, of psychology, I had a couple of professors and supervisors that I worked with long-term that really did a lot. And then certainly as all of us know. We get taught by the larger community of experts in the things we read. And so I've been a voracious reader, but also I spend a lot of time and effort and money on continuing education over the years and going to sit under real experts in kind of micro verticals of things. So I'd say it's been a bunch of them. I'm just reflecting on this sort of dual track that you've had, you know, the clinical and the leadership track. And it just seems so fitting because when you get into business, you get into relationships and you also get into a lot of interpersonal stuff. And so when do the problems occur? The problems occur when you have a breakdown in relationships or you have predispositions that overstress yourself. So you burn out. So that makes perfect sense to me. And I'm wondering if you have any reflections on that. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you go to the field of leadership, and sometimes I'll draw this up on a board for people, and if leadership is over here, you've got all of these areas of study and leadership, which are absolutely essential. If somebody's going to build or run any kind of, even a department of a business, because everybody in business has a problem. That problem is you are an expert in something, marketing, finance, sales, tech, whatever. 
but you do it well. And now they've got you leading people. And that's the second job you were never trained for. And it really is a science. And so we have to treat leadership just like you treat your primary discipline. But then something happens. You go to all the leadership workshops and conferences and read all the books and how it's supposed to be able to cast vision or execute strategy or all these great things. And I know how to do it. But then I walk out here in this place called reality. And then <laughs> my issues begin to kind of get in the way. Now I've got a board. I'm supposed to cast a vision of the board. I stand up and a voice inside my head says, well, what, do you, what makes you think they're going to believe you? Or that guy over there is really skeptical. And now I'm kind of anxious. And so our difficult direct reports, our woundedness, our weaknesses, our fears, all of that come into play in performance, even with the Olympians and NBA players. And that's a big deal. And then you find out something even worse. It's not just me. I got to work with other wackos besides myself. And so now it's sort of like this, this interpersonal soup of a lot of good things can happen, but a lot of dings happen along the way. And that's when everything breaks down. And so what I started to notice was leaders would find that. And then they, they go back to the leadership material. And it didn't really help them with that. So then they go to personal growth. And so they go see a shrink. And they go to the therapist and start to talk about what's happening with the board or leadership. And the therapist looks at him and goes, yes, I can, I can see you're struggling with your work. <laughs> Seems painful. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's all our time for today. <laughs> and sometimes they, and, and I love clinical work and it's very, very important, but sometimes in that field, it doesn't really understand the context of leadership and the demands that leadership put on the psyche and put on the interpersonal tools. And so that's why in my niche for, you know, all these decades, I hang around and I call it the middle space where, where personal and interpersonal dynamics and capacities interact really with the needs and demands of the realities of business. Mm -hmm. And I love it. That's a fun place. So there's so many different books that you've written over the years. And as we were chatting before we turned the recording on, trust is one topic that I haven't devoted an, ex an episode to exclusively on this show. And yet it's the most vital component in a business. At least I would say so. Why did you choose to write this book today? Well, part of that has to do with the why today. You know, you, if you're an author, there's time sequences that drive different projects and you can't write everything you want to say about everything all at once in one season. And there were other things. So it got kind of, it kept getting pushed back a little bit for real reasons, but reasons I was not happy with because you can't, as a coach or a consultant, you can't get called into a, a breakdown in a board, the board and the CEO, or with an executive team, or in a culture, or even in a performance problem, a product launch. And when you start getting under the hood and start looking at how did this happen and how do we fix it, somewhere you're going to very quickly get into the issue of trust. And, you know, we all have this button inside that we trust somebody, we hit go, and so we trust, or that we don't trust somebody, and we hesitate to go back. But what we don't realize a lot of times is to get to green or know when to hit yellow or hit red, 
there's a real algorithm of data that your whole system, your customers have the same system, your stakeholders have the same system, that there's an algorithm where it's taking in all this data and it's going to come up with a green, yellow, or red. And what I found was that in businesses, if they could learn the key components that drive that algorithm, then they could begin to actively execute on those components with the people they lead, their, you know, their customers, with their brand, with the stakeholders, with the board, with the investors. And when you make it something that you're actively working on and hitting the right buttons, it just pole vaults it to a whole nother level. And so I had been, I developed this model probably 20 years ago, maybe, and I've worked with it extensively for all of those years, but I never had published it. And I just needed a tool to be able to give to the companies. That's kind of why I wrote it. I love the way you framed it in the book because it's almost put, it's almost built around systems thinking, if you will, which leaders can get their heads around so well even though it is so interrelational. So it goes beyond a conventional sort of systems methodology within a business because we have all these complex sort of moving parts around relationships and feelings and the psychological aspects. But in the book, you sort of break it down to the five essentials of trust, which are understanding, motive, ability, character, and track record. And I wonder if we could just unpack these and you could give a teaser to, to the listening audience as to what these really are, maybe start with understanding. Well, you know, we basically do not trust someone. And, to, and, and what I mean by trust is you're not going to steal my money or something like that, but I, I mean to invest. What you're looking for in a trusting relationship in business is you want investment. You want your team to be invested in what you're trying to get them to do and invested in you. If you've ever been on a team where somebody had one foot in and one foot out, then you know what happens or around the table. So we're looking for the whole heart, mind, and soul to invest and be both feet in. And basically, when you look at, at what actually drives that, the most foundational aspect to our trusting someone is we must feel like they understand me, what I need, what's important to me, what hurts me, what causes me pain, what causes me happiness, what, what I'm afraid of. And if I feel like you really get me and what my business needs or what I need from that chair around the team, and you really understand me at a deep level and emotional level, as well as cognitively, then that's the very first, and this goes back to neuroscience, we are wired to determine pretty quickly whether somebody is with me or not in terms of a tune. And it basically begins, everybody's heard the term mirror neurons. You're, you're wired from infancy to sense if somebody's getting you, you know, if they're, if, yeah, I see what you're feeling. That is hard, wouldn't it? And somebody's in tune with us, the whole system begins to just open up. And it comes from deep, 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 active and very strategically important abilities to listen. You know, I was talking about this in leadership forum one day and a guy walks up to me and he says, I'm, I'm the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. He said, I'm the guy that goes in when the guy's got a bomb strapped to him and hostages in the bank. I got to talk him out of there. 
He said, everything you just described is our entire trading program. We don't walk in and try to convince him. Trust me, we don't walk in and say, dude, this is a bad idea. You know, you shouldn't do this. But that's what leaders do in business a lot of times. They'll try to talk people into going with them. They'll try to talk people into the deal. They'll try to talk people into the agenda or the vision or whatever. Nobody's listening if they don't first feel understood. And so I have a little phrase. I say, you know, you don't understand somebody when you understand them. You understand them when they understand that you understand. Because now they feel like he gets it. He gets it. He knows what we need. He knows what's important to us. So it does start with understanding. I mean, how many people have come home to a note on the kitchen table with their spouse after 10 years of marriage and, and they say, I can't do this anymore. I'm gone. And they go, what? What? And they're very surprised. But they shouldn't be because she's been trying to, or he's been trying to tell you for 10 years, but you're not getting it. You're trying to talk them out of it. We'll never get past people's objections or fears if, if they don't feel like we get it. Everybody's worked out of a boss's office and, and the team's huddled around and they go, what happened? They go, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. That's the feeling. And I'm translating the word understanding to business nomenclature in terms of what it does for an organization when there's a high level of understanding, which is really engagement. Only. Organizations with high levels of engagement are filled with employees that are connected to each other and they feel like they're understood and heard. Wouldn't you say that's the case? Yeah. And they're, they're understood by the company, but they're understood around the table as well. You know, I, I got called into a, a big technology company one time. They had a product launch that had failed. And the can you read about the Wall Street Journal? It was a big, big failure. We got in and started doing the postmortem. And what had actually had, had happened was, it was this thing of understanding. The CEO's driving the pressure to hit the numbers, right? So the sales team is out there selling the customers and the customer goes, well, will it be able to do this? Oh yeah, we, we could build that in. That's no problem. They're promising a lot of features without ever understanding what that's going to mean for R&D. Because they got to make that stuff by April. And they never really listened to each other about what the needs of each one of them was in order to succeed. And so when a team is working like that, it's a totally different deal. I, I, a particular builder I know that ended up winning builder of the year. This is back before this was standard practice in the home building industry. You, you know, when you build out a development, your biggest cost is the carrying cost of that land until you can get it all sold, right? So he's looking at how can we shorten this? And he brought the idea for the first time. You know, there's a lot of lags because the roofers show up and the trunks are pouring the concrete in the driveway. And they say, well, we won't be done until next week. And, you know, he started getting all of the subs together to listen to each other's, what they've got to do to build this house and to start to meet each other's needs for scheduling and access and all that. And what, ha what happened was the length of finishing the projects went from here to here, all those costs disappear. And then he shares, he has them participate in the savings just because they're working together, listening to each other. It's a simple concept, but it changes everything. The other thing too, that's before we move on to the next one, which is motive. The one thing that's coming to mind for me about understanding is also listening to understand rather than listen to reply. 
And it feels like, Henry, that one of the things that people want most is this first one that you're talking about, just to be understood. It's the other examples being at a cocktail party and in a conversation with somebody whose eyes are shifting all around the room. They're just not focused on you. They're looking for the next. I'm not really interested in that. Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly right. It, it goes back to that term. It's really from developmental psychology. The term they use is attunement. That the baby comes out and is crying and upset and all this. And if there's a tune in your tone and how you're present and they can feel that presence and then they start, maybe say yes, they start nodding or they say, no, you know, they turn away. You, you picked up at an important point about what happens at the end of a sentence. The really, really, really powerful leaders at the end of somebody's sentence, what they say most often, especially in the beginning, is going to take that person deeper into what they were saying, not like you're saying, hit the ball back over the net with their point, or it becomes a cue to think about what they want to talk about. You start watching this with people, and you can see who is other-oriented and who is egocentric and self-centered. Okay, what about motive? Tell us about motive. We sense pretty quickly why somebody's there. <laughs> My motive, is, it gets to the question of whatever they're telling me, who's it for? Is Are they just out for themselves and that's why they want to do, even if they're doing something for you. How many times do you say, hey, I got a deal for you? You go, yeah, for me, really? Right. <laughs> we always know what's in it for them, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with having mutual interest. That's how it's what drives business. But if you feel like all you are is another sale or all you are as, as even a team member is another object to them to get what they need to get done versus when you feel like somebody, certainly they got to get what they need to get done and they got to make sales, but they really have your best interest as a win for them, that that makes them happy when you're doing well and when you're thriving, I, I wrote about in the book, I had two knee replacements in the last couple of years and, and I went to see one surgeon and, you know, he was examining me, he calls in four residents and, and he's going, Hey, so see this thing, guys, this is the research paper we're doing. This guy was to be a great subject and what we can do, we can take his measurements and all of a sudden I'm feeling like, Hey, there's a patient over here, you know, <laughs> but it was all about him. And all about his deal, all about their conference and their research and all that. I went to another surgeon to get a second opinion. And he said, well, man, you know, I've read about you. You're a competitive golfer and we got to get you back on the golf course. You can't be hobbling around like this, but you could really, there's a lot of years of good golf out there. So, you know, and then he said, and you got two, two daughters. How old are they? And I told him, he said, you're going to want to be traveling with them and all this. He's describing, and you, and you can kind of tell he's really excited about my results for me. And I'm like, dude, I'm go ahead. You can cut on me now. I'll tell you another example. I, I, one of the last times I bought a car, everybody knows the car salesman, right? They're trying to get the deal. But this guy says, you know, it started to ask me about how we use our cars and what we do. He goes, I can sell you a car, but everything you described. I go down the street because they've got a my and a totally different brand, totally different leader, a dealership. He said, I think it'd be better for you. 
I go, I don't care how buying your car. <laughs> you want me to win. But have you ever been nervous when somebody's in a meeting and they know there's something going on in that meeting also about you and something that's important to you? There are certain people that you feel like, oh, crap, I better be there to protect myself. And there's other people you feel like, I don't have to be there. They got my back. Absolutely. That's when we sense that motive. And customers feel this all the time. Are you about your business or are you about theirs and what they need? It's almost like we have an innate radar around this whole area of motive. That's nonverbal right. that you can tell, right? Usually 150% nonverbal because somebody's usually not going to show up and says, I'm here to screw you anyway. I can. <laughs> there, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you, right? <laughs> they tell you they're for, for you, but you better trust God, lock your door, right? Yes. <laughs> the next one's ability. Talk to us about ability. Yeah. Somebody can be really empathic and really understand us deeply, really want us to win. But do they have the ability to pull off what I'm entrusting to them? My surgeon, the one that's really empathic, and I know he's for me, and I say, okay, let's do the surgery. And, but what if he goes, and I'm really excited about doing your knee replacement. This he's Because I'm an OB-GYN. I've never done one of these before, and I've always wanted to do one. I'm all of a sudden going, no, I don't. It's not exactly. This is going to be my first <laughs> knee surgery. <laughs> and this is contextual. See, we can trust someone with our lives in one area, but we're talking about entrusting something to them that if we don't feel like they have the real ability to pull it off to meet our need and the desired result, then it starts to break down. This happens all the time. People go into business with friends because they love each other. Wouldn't it be fun to work together? Let's start a business. And they trust them with their lives. But then six months later, he's going, my partner doesn't know anything about running a business. This is a nightmare. So this ability thing is really, really important for us to, to just rest our head on. You don't have to worry about it. They are going to be able to deliver through their competencies what I've entrusted to them. And, you know, brands and companies that have ways of, without being arrogant or prideful or blowhards, giving people a little bit of a pee under the hood of, we really, really didn't overdo it. When people begin to experience that, they let down. And so we just need for somebody to be able to do what we're dependent on them to do. And a lot of times we think, oh, I trust him. He never lied to me. You know, he's been good in this area. I, I got called in one time to a company where the a new CEO and been there for a year and it was kind of floundering. And I said, well, how, how did he become the CEO? And, and the board said, he was our CEO for 10 years and he was incredible. He, you know, increased supply chains and infrastructures and all this stuff. And so we promoted him to CEO when the old CEO returned. I said, so he was a CEO and I was a CEO. And they said, yeah. I said, where do you get the E? And they said, what do you mean? It was well, a CEO now. Where did he get the E? I said, no, the E chip. I mean, as I'm looking at your scenario and I've done all the interviews and looked at the way it was, I said, this company is being operated. It's not being led. And so we can trust people in one context, but we have to make sure that they do have the abilities to do what we're trusting them to. 
I had a Navy SEAL brother-in-law. If the bad guys were coming after me, I would trust them in a heartbeat. If my dog dies, I need a shoulder to cry on. Mark wasn't the one I was going to go. But my really empathic, loving friends, I don't want them taking the bullet for me. I want Mark. So ability is a big deal. I'm also just thinking about how interconnected all of these are because you could have somebody with a high degree of competency or ability, maybe even a rock star salesperson that knocks the ball out of the park every month but nobody can get along with this person. So just because you have that ability, it doesn't necessarily mean that the trust should be granted to that individual. That's right. And that gets into the fourth component. The fourth component is because a lot of great salespeople have several of these, right? But you get in the fourth component and that's the character. Now, we make a big mistake in that we, we truncate character into a sub character definition of character, which is morals and ethics. So we think if somebody's got a good character, they don't lie, cheat, or steal. Well, my daughters knew not to lie, cheat, or steal when they were five years old, but that doesn't mean that they have the makeup, the character makeup to run a business, right? So the moral attributes are absolutely foundational. Without them, you don't have anything, and somebody shouldn't even be working for you if they lie, cheat, and steal. But we're talking about the makeup, how they're glued together. And this gets into all of those other aspects, like, you know, what is their impulse control? You know, do they get distracted by the next shiny object? And this is, this is what we're going to focus on over the next three months, and then Monday morning you get 63 emails about Hey, this new deal, and it totally gets you off strategy. That, that's part of their makeup. Or like you said, what if they have an anger problem? What if they are condescending and nobody get along with them, as you said? And, or what if, how about perseverance? You've got some people that are great performers, but they need a lot of attaboys and they need a lot of good news and things get hard or difficult. They, you know, go find something more fun to do. Well, you're going to send them on a project that's a turnaround for a year and there will, will be no good news for a year. There are people that are glued together with that character makeup. They love eating problems for breakfast. Well, that's who you want. And so we have to look at what kind of individual and their makeup. You know, we're talking about an arc of a story. If you look at it in a movie, certain characters have very different arcs through the movie. And some might be the hero and some might be the hand elder and some might be, you know, the one that runs away in a crisis. There's all sorts of stuff. So really, really important to look at somebody's makeup. This is where a lot of the kind of the EQ stuff follows. All the research in the world shows that you get to the C-suite, everybody looks the same. IQ, education, business experience, business acumen, all of that. But then the high performers about 92%, I think it is, of that delta between them and everybody else is this arena of how they're glued together as people. Okay, and then the last one is track record. Track record. What happened the last time? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Yeah. You know, look, our, our minds build mental maps. So, you know, when you go to the refrigerator in the morning, you trust it, even if the lights aren't on, you go to the stairs, turn right, go right there. You don't even think about it because you've built a map of how that works. You've done it 10,000 times. 
if somebody puts a couch out in the middle of that, in the middle of the night, you go down and boom, you fall down, you know, your map got disturbed, right? But then the next morning, you're kind of like, I better watch it on something that you thought you could trust. So always, 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 the best predictor of the future is the past. Always. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't change and do way better, but here's what happens. They've got, if they don't have a track record of having pulled off what you're asking them to pull off, and let's say they even fail, or you haven't seen it, and you go, okay, well, let's go try this, but you haven't seen a track record yet, then good luck. Because what's going to happen is pretty much the way that they've always performed. Now, if they do fail and say, I'm sorry, I'll do better, that's not the time to trust them either. That's the time maybe to give them a chance to build up to that and build a new past. Because you say, well, what about this guy? Didn't he, didn't he go bankrupt? Yeah, he did three years ago. But in the last three years, this is how he's developed. So now what am I, I'm still talking about the past. It's the last three years. We've got a new past. And so we've got to look at what has somebody's performance been in all four of these other areas. And that's pretty much what we can count on, you know, going forward. Because that's how they're wiring it. So people change. I'm in the change business. People, leopards change their spots. But they don't change their spots because one day they say, okay, I'll try harder or I'll get more committed or whatever. And I'm sorry for what happened yesterday. We have no we can depend on, and that's going to be a track record. I mean, how many times have you ever been to a meeting? It's supposed to start at 8 o'clock, and it's 8.05, and Mary's not there. They're waiting. And everybody goes, kind of concerned about Mary. Can somebody call her? Why are they concerned about Mary? Because Mary's always on time. They think something must have happened. However, if Joey isn't there at 9.05, they go, okay, let's get started. What about Joey? <laughs> No, wait, no, Joey. Joey's always late. Let's get started. Because Joey's got traffic. And so that's how we operate. And, and with brands, especially, people know what their last experience was like. And there's something called a recency effect that loads on that as well. So we always have to be really understanding that every interaction we're having with, some, with somebody is creating a, creating a middle map. And that's the track record. And so that's the way it works. And so if I'm a leader and I'm going to take a risk by putting somebody in a new position that they may not have as much of a track record for, yeah. does it underscore the importance of evaluating these other character traits and elements, these other, the four other four essentials of trust? Yeah, it, it does because you can't look at they've run a division before or this and the other. But what you can look at is the track record of the competencies that are going to be needed in this new context. Okay. So where is a place where they have led people? Where is a place where they, even though they weren't running the thing, they, they had a project that they had to go from X to Hilo to, to building something. Where were they able to organize teams? All of that. And you're, they've never done this before, but they've done this before, or they've shown the aptitudes to be able to do it. You know, when somebody goes to college, for example, they've never been to college before. That's a new position. 
But what they do is they factor and analyze the skills that are going to be necessary to succeed there. And so you can make what in, you know, statistical psychology is called predictive validity. And we have ways of looking at people to be able to predict that those ways are valid to know that they'll be able to, you know, to pull this off. I tell a story in a book about a friend of mine's daughter's boyfriend called him and said, I want to take you to dinner. And he told me, so I know what this means. He's going to ask for her hand in marriage. He goes, what do you say at that dinner? And I said, well, I got two daughters. I know what I'm going to do. He said, what? And I said, I'm going to tell him to bring his last two years tax returns. And he starts laughing. He goes, you're not going to. I said, I absolutely am. I promise you, I am going to do that. He goes, that's so intriguing. I said, look, I don't care what he makes. He can white out the numbers. Mm -hmm. I just want to see if he can find them. Yeah. It's a demonstration <laughs> of responsibility, essentially. If my daughter's going to marry her financial life and well-being and running a home to some guy, what's his track record there of meeting not like boyfriend responsibilities? Yeah, he might, you know, can make her swoon, but in running a life. So this stuff gets really, really important. So I want to make sure to hit this question before we switch into the lightning round questions. And it's really about a misnomer, at least what I think is a misnomer, and I'd love your comments on this. But it feels like sometimes a barrier to trust can arise when people feel like validating someone else's feelings is agreeing with them. And that's not the case, correct? Can you set the record straight on that? That is our, one of our biggest fears where you feel like, well, I can't validate that because he's wrong, <laughs> right? Well, you're not agreeing that something is real. You're not agreeing that something is true. What you're doing is validating that that's their experience and that you hear it. I can see this very, very painful for you. I can see what I did really, really hurt you. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't do the same thing again because it's the right decision to do. But I'm really validating that it's either hard for them or are frustrated about it or they don't like it or whatever it is. Look, I've treated people, you know, as a clinician back when I was doing a lot of that, that were, I remember one, one woman, I, I asked her something and she says, wait, I have to ask them. I go, who? And she goes, she looks down the little green men on the couch that she took her instructions from. Okay. So if I go, there's no green men there. It's not her experience. If I go, tell me about them. Well, that must, that must really help to have somebody watching guard for you. And just validating it, I'm not agreeing with it. I'm validating, and literally, the person I'm talking about now is a leader in an organization. The thought disorder is cured, all that kind of stuff. But if you can't enter into their world, you don't have to agree there's green men, but you got to understand that there's green men for them. Okay. That this customer that's calling you, that as the worst experience with your lousy company, because that you've got to be able to, oh my gosh, that's, that's terrible. It feels that way. Let me see what I can, 
And instead of, well, it's not that big a deal. All we do is ship it a day late where you're invalidating the current term that is gaslighting. You're trying to talk somebody out of their reality. So it is a big fear. It is, I'm struggling with this. It's hard to bite my lip when somebody's just, I, this is loony what they're telling me. But, you know, I got to nod and understand before I get them to see that it's loony. <laughs> Yeah, and coming to agreement on a path forward is a different part of the conversation. But it feels like if we do well in that validation piece, trust goes up. So we give ourselves better odds of actually creating a path forward. You're exactly right. Because somehow we've got to, people start out on opposite sides of the table. What we got to do is we got to get to the same side of the table and have the problem be on the opposite side of the table. So we're working together, like you're saying, to have a path forward to address this problem and get where we want to go. And if I just keep pushing them back and, you know, explaining to everybody why they're wrong, you know, it's like the CEO where, you know, the team's in there and, you know, there's some difficulties in the market or with the supply chain or whatever it is. And they're processing that and you're going, what is y'all's problem? Here in the C-suite, if you can't solve that, I'll find, you know, instead of, well, tell me what the struggles are. Yeah, that, that slowdown is a big deal. I mean, that's got to, you know, and just entering into it with them. So the key word is with, it doesn't mean that you think that it's as big a deal as they think it is. It probably is not to you, but. Bite your lip and empathize. <laughs> yeah, and curiosity can be your best friend in that oh, moment, right? Yeah, you said an important <laughs> word there. Really, really important. Yeah. The best leaders are curious. Ready for the lightning round? Doesn't sound like it. Sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> lightning as in quick, not painful. Let's do it. What are you most grateful for? I have to say my family. My wife and our two daughters and our Doberman have to include. What's your Doberman's yeah. name? Finley. Ah, nice. <laughs> one day we said, you know, we ought, to, we ought to count how many times she makes us laugh in a day. You can't, you can't <laughs> buy that kind of joy. <laughs> it's just. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> That's what's important yeah, in life. <laughs> really cool. What's the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over the course of your career? Oh, boy, that's like trying to choose from a bunch of them. I think one of them, one of them is this is going to be harder than I thought because I tend to be, see things that don't exist and go do them. And I feel like, well, I can see them. There's a path. Let's go do it. You know, well, yeah, there's lions and tigers and bears out there too. And so sometimes more than sometimes I can, can be guilty of kind of fire ready aim, if you will. And, and just in terms of not, it's not understanding how hard it's going to be, but once you get into it, you learn that and you're there. And so you work it out. I think that's one of them. I think another one is learning to really, really, really have self-respect in this way. I've got, I've had to learn to respect my weakness. Mm. I had to give them great respect. Maybe, Say more. Well, you know, I think, I think building things and running things and starting things and trying to execute on things, 
you really need to know what your lane is, what you do well, and you really need to respect your less than great abilities in other lanes. You really start to listen to people better, but you start to look for talent very differently. First of all, you, you understand the need for it, but you realize you're not going to get there without it. And so that finding the right talent becomes really, really important. I think that that's, uh, that was a difficult one. I think, I mean, I could go along with it. There's a bunch of them, but those are two of the big ones. Sounds like the voice of wisdom speaking right there. <laughs> so, well, you know, the thing about wisdom, I always think, what is wisdom? It's experience, you know, people with the experience, they learn and we call them wise, but there, there's two, <laughs> there's two ways to get it. We can be humble enough to receive it when somebody offers it to us, who's had the skin needs to get it and buy it from them, or we can go learn it the hard way. And so <laughs> I try to spend a whole lot of time and effort buying it and getting it from people who paid a lot higher price <laughs> and trying to continually develop the real humility list of people who know what they're doing. Now, the downside of that though is, you know, at times if you're wired a certain way that you see things that the Wisdom of experience doesn't see because they are a little bit trapped in, into old paradigms and stuff. It's kind of a balance. You gotta be, you gotta be hard-headed enough to not believe everything over what you think you can see, but you gotta be humble enough to know that you can't see everything either. And that's kind of a tough balance. That's where a good, I think a good, good board of advisors, good coaches, good thought partners, I always tell. Those, you know, we begin, they go, well, how do you describe, you know, what you do? And I go, well, there's a lot of different things I'll do here, but number one, I'm going to be your thought partner and have an outside person is not a stakeholder. So doesn't matter to me whether you close that factory down or not, you know, what matters to me is that you guys win, but an outside place where somebody can think with you. And I think that's an important role that we all need in our lives. I appreciate that. And don't you have something on your LinkedIn site that's something to the fact of if you're a CEO and it's lonely at the top, you're doing it wrong or, or, you know, it, it yeah, shouldn't be lonely at the top, right? <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, I hear people say that leadership's lonely at the top. No, no. What's, what's tough at the top is the weightiness of some decisions because you got to make the call, but if you're lonely, you're a dictator. You know, if you don't have, if you don't feel like you've got a board that's in it with you, you've got a team that's in it with you and you've got a couple of advisors or whatever, then you're a closed system and every closed system entropy increases, degenerates, and ultimately it implodes. So if somebody tells you they're lonely, we got to fix that first. Great reference point. Who is one person you would interview if you could, living or not? Well, one's kind of a little bit of a slam dunk, and then I'll give you a more realistic one. I'd interview Jesus. I mean, <laughs> how do you start a global movement with not very much talent around you? <laughs> it lasts for 2,000 years. 
I think if, if I could interview anybody today, it'd be Elon. I'd love to do that interview. Well, like I said, the, you know, you got the leadership and business, but you got the, you know, the personal stuff and he, he is, he's a very complex mix of a lot of abilities and a lot of brains and a lot of complexities and a lot of woundedness and antinomy. And I think it, it'd really be interesting to, to climb in there. That would be a fascinating interview. You, <laughs> you're right. So you written a ton of books. I know you're also a avid reader. Do you have anything to recommend to our listeners? Uh, it could be a long, long list, long, long, long list. You know, one of the most impactful books, like when I look at the long haul, is a book called Nomad is an Island by Thomas Burton. Just the, the primacy, you know, relationships. I get into a lot of technical stuff and there's a lot of a lot of books like that, Otto Kernberg, because I deal with character pathology a lot. He wrote some really almost similar works in, in character pathology, like, uh, borderline conditions and pathological narcissism was, was one internal world, external reality was another one he wrote. So I could go down the technical side as well. That's kind of where I, I hang out. Sure. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I can tell you one of the quippiest ones that I find myself saying to people a lot. My mentor, when I was 23, I'll never forget this. And he said, Henry, you know, the definition of rich. And I said, no, what's the definition of rich? Tell me. And he goes, low overhead. Ah, that's a good one. <laughs> and if you think about that as metaphor. Metaphorically speaking, overhead slows us down. It makes us have to attend to things that are really off real mission. It gives us, making us having to make sure we can just stay alive. It takes away being nimble and agile and creative and all of that. So I, I tend to think of metaphorically in life. There's one of my favorite verses in the Bible says it talks about the stuff that so easily entangles you. I think that being able to, especially for CEOs, to be unentangled as much as possible, which is psychological and bureaucratic and business overhead, that slows you down. And it keeps you from, you know, one of the biggest problems in business is metaphorically speaking, ADD, that the executive functions of the brain, your prefrontal cortex, they do three things. They attend to what's relevant to get you there. They have to inhibit everything else and they have to keep a working memory in front of you all the time of what's important. And largely that is the, you know, executive functions of the brain. Well, that's the CEO's job as well. And I think that finding the things that entangle them and their attention from what that chair, only that chair can do is quite a big deal. Exactly right. It's just, I've got a good friend who is the CEO of Synovus for a long time and lead director for at and on their board. And he said one time, he said, every day when I went to work and he talks in a deep Southern Georgia accent like this, 
He says, every day when I went to work, I knew what my job was as a CEO. My job was to figure out whatever I did that day to never have to do it again and give it to somebody else. He said, because I need the my calendar, the future tomorrow, I need that to be able to be white space to go do what only I can do. And that's really wise. And you know, that that's how the brain is designed. We attend to something basically to learn it, but once it's learned, your brain delegates it to other parts of the organization. So you can go attend to where you're going. Really, really important. That makes perfect sense to me. And I'm reflecting on when we coach CEOs, one of the first things that ends up coming up almost consistently is how to reduce dependency on them in their role. And it's exactly what you're describing. It's reducing overhead. It's reducing entanglement. So I really love that reference. Henry, you've brought so much wisdom. Your book is fantastic. I encourage our listening audience to go get the book. It's called Trust. And out of all the things that we covered today, what's one or two important takeaways you would want to leave our listeners with? Oh, I think, you know, we started by talking about relationship. And obviously everything is driven by relationship and the ability to trust. And I think when a leader really gets it, you know, it's like your brain. If you're the, if you're the brain, you're the executive functions of the organization, your, your body has a brain. If I want to get from here to there, the brain sees the vision, right? Well, tell your brain to go there. You want to go from here to there, go there, brain. Your brain ain't going anywhere by itself. The next thing it does is it engages the talent that's going to need to take it or take it there. So I think all the things we've talked about are deeply, deeply relationally imbued. And some of the space where you can spend your biggest ROI in terms of time and energy and even money is developing your relational toolbox. And that includes self-awareness and other awareness and communication skills, conflict resolution, negotiation, emotional regulation. The more... You know, the word integrity means to be integrated. The more you can integrate as a person, the greater everything is going to be. So that's probably what I would spend time and money on it. Get a coach, get, get, you know, go to stuff where they get inside your skull. The best investment you could make, right? Yeah, it is. Henry, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been good. And I really, I love the space you're in. I love what you're doing. And so bless you guys and I hope it continues to go well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Human Capital. If you like this show, please tell your friends and also take the time to go rate and review us. Human Capital is a production of Goalspan, your integrated source for performance management. Now go out and be the inspiration to other humans. And thank you for being human kind.